Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, tech for social good, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorganchase.com technology. This is MIT Technology Review. The International Space Station conducts research and development that can't be done on Earth. Thousands of experiments have been conducted there, as this is the only lab where scientists can do long-duration work in microgravity. And that's been important to a number of developments, like how we treat disease and purify water. But the space station is starting to show its age, with intermittent repairs and safety concerns as it gets closer to its end of life. The countdown is on at NASA. The International Space Station will be retired after 23 years in service. Towards 2030, 2031, NASA will work on first lowering the ISS gradually closer to Earth, then in 2031 bring it back into Earth. But NASA will likely not build the next space station. Instead, the agency will depend on the technology of outside companies. This episode, we get an insider's look at what's next for space research with astronaut Michael Lopez-Alegria. Dragon, SpaceX, go for launch. Earlier this year, he served as commander of Axiom-1, the first ever private mission to the space station. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Stop. Go Falcon, go Dragon. Godspeed, Axiom-1. He's also the current holder of multiple NASA records for spacewalks. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this week we're live from Tech Review's flagship conference about emerging technology and global trends, MTech MIT. Thank you. Let's have a seat. You've got not quite as many nicknames as you have uh, <laughs> accolades, not quite. But I feel like so that everybody in the room is aware, you're the same person as Mike L.A., MLA. What would you like us to call you? Your choice. Oh. Okay, well, that makes it... I'm um, the only guy on stage, so I'm pretty sure I'll know who you're talking to. <laughs> speaking seriously, the space station's running out of time. A number of companies are working hard to come up with alternatives. What's the value of sustaining our presence in low Earth orbit? Well, so we just passed the uh, 22nd anniversary of continuously inhabited space station. And since 2000, they've been uh, doing world-class microgravity science. I mean, Mm -hmm. pure and simple, you can't replicate microgravity on Earth, uh, at least not for very long. You can do it in a drop tower for several seconds. You can do it on a parabolic flight for maybe 20 or 25 seconds. But if you want sustained microgravity, you need to go to space to do it. And so we've been doing technology development, all manner of fundamental, and also a little bit of advanced research in that realm. And so we need to keep doing it. And all the agencies who participate in the ISS have expressed their interest to continue to do so. But as you mentioned, the platform is sort of running out of gas and um, it needs to be replaced at some point. Yeah, I think that gets lost on some of us, you know, the why we're doing this, right? It's not just for tourism. The first ever private mission to ISS, you were the commander earlier this year. Uh, What were your goals? 
So this, all the private astronaut missions that we're doing are sort of a step toward this commercial space station. So we're trying to do a couple of things. One is to get used to working with NASA and the other agencies that are part of the ISS partnership. And of course, you know, the operations, you would not imagine the amount of detail that goes into planning these missions. And so understanding all those interfaces, all the expectations we have on each other. And so we are trying to establish those uh, lines of communication and just sort of get used to each other in a way. And the second thing, of course, is to develop the market. We want a government customer, but we also want private customers, both private individuals like the three that were on AX1. And we don't like the word tourism. That's not what we're about. Um, tourism has a place in commercial human spaceflight, but it isn't the ISS. That's a place to do really meaningful work. And so our three citizens teamed with uh, research organizations from their areas, and they were super busy during the time we were up there. But that also helps foment this idea of generating an economy in low Earth orbit, so we need the, the demand, and, and that's the second part of why we do these private astronaut missions. Mm. How was it different from the previous NASA missions? I'm sure it had to feel really different, right? You're with different folks. It was remarkably similar and remarkably different in different ways. So the, the similar part, sort of as a human, when I got on the ISS, I hadn't been there for 15 years. The last time I was there, it was half its size. The crew was three instead of seven. It was a much less, I'll say, busy place. Now it is just loaded. With, you can't go anywhere without seeing something going on on, on, on a rack or on a module somewhere. And yet... It felt like, I use the analogy, that it's like going home to the, the house that you grew up in that's probably been remodeled since you left, but it feels very familiar. And there was just something about it that I felt instantly like I was back there. But there, it's very different in not only in the ways I mentioned before, but for me personally, uh, you know, I was taking care of these three other folks, and it was very important to me that they be successful and they be satisfied. Because in addition to being my crewmates, they're my customers. So it's a strange needle that I had to thread in order to kind of try to check both blocks um, satisfactorily. Sure, that's very interesting. We have a poll question for the audience here, and that is, have you or your company considered conducting research in space? If you want to click on it, check yes or no, we'll get that for you just a little bit later. Also, I'm going to take your questions soon, so if you want to start getting those ready as well. Help folks understand a little bit more about the work you were doing and, and why it's important. Well, I think fundamentally what we're doing is taking gravity out of the equation. <clears throat> so it is in a preponderant force here on Earth that because of its, its importance, I guess its, uh, its weight, um, it's difficult to see smaller forces like capillary effect or, you know, when you light a match on Earth, the flame burns in a certain way because you know it's heating the air above it and that's causing oxygen to flow. When you light a match in space, it burns spherically because the only way it gets fed is by diffusion instead of by convection. So all these forces that are unavoidable here can be removed out of the equation. And we learn things that are both sort of fundamentally interesting from a basic science standpoint, but also have applications and that's where we go from research or scientific experiments into technology development. For instance, uh, on AX1, I did an experiment where we had tiles that were shaped either as pentagons or hexagons. In fact, the PI is here at MIT, if I'm not mistaken. And 
they were magnetized. And so if you ever looked at a soccer ball, a sphere is actually composed of these different shapes. And so the idea is you could release these things and if you put them in the right way, they would all come together and make a sphere. And you couldn't, obviously couldn't do that in, in gravity, but you able to do that and to create structures, taking advantage of the microgravity environment is you know, one of a million examples of what we can do uh, in the absence of gravity. Yeah, and in terms of applications, you hear a lot about pharmaceutical research. Were there other um, applications that uh, folks with you were working on or towards? Uh, another example, so Eitan Stibe from Israel was taking a, a liquid polymer and he was uh, injecting it with a syringe into a, a ring, an, an annular shape, and he would wet the inside of the ring with this fluid and keep adding fluid until that liquid actually closed. And then if he kept adding fluid after that, of course, it, the, the liquid would adhere to the edge of the ring, but it would grow in thickness in the middle. And by adjusting that, he could make the shape be either convex or concave. And then we cured it with ultraviolet light and it solidified in a matter of minutes. And so this is an idea that if you want to make lenses in space, for instance, for applications of looking out the window or looking, making them in a microscope, Another thing. So, I mean, I go on and on. It's, um, they're all very distinct, but interesting in their own right. Yeah, I think I read you had 25 different experiments going on up there. That's right. And when you think about the history of ISS in those 22 years that I mentioned, I think the number is approaching 3,500. And just in, in a space of, you know, a week and a little bit, we did 25. So we were pretty busy up there. Yeah, wow. Our Canadian Mark Pathy did uh, the first ever two-way holoportation from space. So he was, you know, in the lab. I was watching him and he was having a conversation with people that he thought were literally floating in front of him. And, uh, of course, the people on the, on the ground thought that he was down there with them. So just an, another example, Larry Connor, the American, in conjunction with the Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, was doing stem cell research in the uh, life sciences glove box. So he would... You know, it's got to be a very clean environment, and he had stem cell samples that he was treating with different additives, I guess, sometimes to promote growth, sometimes to actually kill the cells and, and study them later. We did some interesting work with tumor organoids that wow. were um, looked at under a microscope actually from the ground, and they found some interesting mutations that they would not have expected. Folks, do you have any questions? If you would, just raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone your way. How does it feel to be in an enclosed environment for long lengths of time? Do you mind to introduce yourself as well? Oh, Betty Jurina, retired assistant chair of computer science at New Jersey City University. Fantastic. Hi, Betty. Hi. So there's closed and then there's closed. Um, I'll say that when you're uh, the, the most closed probably is in a spacesuit when you're doing a spacewalk. You're, you know, you're in a very tight-fitting spacecraft, if you will, which you're probably in for probably eight hours or so at a time. You know, you can obviously see outside and, and it's the biggest contrast you can imagine because you're in this tiny suit, but you have the expanse of the universe before you. I think that, first of all, if you're claustrophobic, space is not for you. Um, that, that, was, that isn't a particularly claustrophobic experience, but you definitely have the sense that, you know, you're you're in a sports car. You know, it's really a, a, a very maneuverable, tight thing that becomes part of you. I'd say next on the spectrum is flying on the Soyuz, which is the Russian uh, capsule 
three people, incredibly small. I, I sometimes I look at it now in the mock-ups and I can't believe I spent 48 hours in it going to the space station. The Crew Dragon, the space shuttle, all about the same in terms, probably the Crew Dragon a little bit tighter, the space shuttle a little bit more. Once you get on an ISS, it's pretty roomy. The, the cylinders themselves are about five meters in diameter. And so in the corridors, maybe three meters, you know, it's square and you can float freely. There are, I don't know, several. There are more modules than there are people. And I remember on my long duration mission back in 2006, 2007, I'd go an entire morning or afternoon without seeing somebody because they were all doing their things in their own module. So it doesn't feel certainly physiologically imposing. Now, there is that sense about, you know, I can't go out if I want to. I guess people just get prepared for that psychologically, and, and it really isn't a factor. All right, do we have another question? Oh, I see one in the back there. Uh, hello, yeah. My name is Bruce McCabe. I'm a futurist. Um, how far are you going now with recycling and the experience there with both water and materials and that sort of thing in the ISS? Can you share a little bit of that experience? Yeah, thanks for the question, Bruce. So we do recycle most of the water. We like to say that yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee. <laughs> so it's not just urine, but all the humidity, all that stuff gets processed and I don't know the numbers exactly, but I want to say it's 85 to 90% of the water that is brought up ends up being used again. Now, we also use water to make electricity. And in the Axiom station, we're going to use a system called a sabatier that will help. So we, we breathe carbon dioxide, and this sabatier process can help with the carbon dioxide that's taken from there. And right now on ISS, they've done it in the past, they use the oxygen that separates that and they combine it with hydrogen. The hydrogen is expelled overboard, but we're going to take that hydrogen and to combine it with the CO2 from the carbon dioxide removal system and make methane. So our propulsion is all going to be organically produced, if you will. And so that's obviously very important. In ISS, you know, it's the government price is somewhere around $50,000 per kilo to get something in orbit, so it's, it's not cheap but it's pretty close by. When you're thinking about going to the moon or even Mars, especially Mars, I should say, imagine you know, having to bring everything with you on a trip that's gonna last 18 months maybe, and you've gotta bring food, clothing, water, oxygen, propellant, all that stuff with you. The more you can recycle, obviously, the better, so it's important. Oh, great, you have a mic already? Excellent. I do. Hi, uh, T. Velasquez at Textron Systems. I um, run a lab that develops uh, autonomous systems for air, land, and sea. So far, we haven't branched into space. I wonder, what have you seen for, for autonomous systems that are active on ISS and elsewhere in the space domain? And could you offer a projection for the future of autonomous systems, human autonomy teaming in the context of human spaceflight? Well, I'm a pilot by, by training, and so I can talk a lot about the manual versus automated systems. Um, of course, the space shuttle was fully manual in, in terms of the, both the final approach during rendezvous and the landing. So a pilot in the loop, 100%. When NASA decided to commercially produce vehicles to go to the ISS, contracts that were run by SpaceX and Boeing, there was a big debate about how much automation they were going to allow. So the pilot union is pretty strong at NASA. As you may remember from Mercury days, you know, they demanded to have a window, et cetera. Well, that spirit lives on. And we have a lot of capabilities in those vehicles uh, of manual control that um, I think the providers, certainly SpaceX, would have preferred to do without. 
but NASA made them requirements, and so they are. I can tell you that from liftoff to splashdown in the SpaceX vehicle, I mean, the fact is the same vehicle autonomously docks and deorbits and does everything by itself in the cargo version. So you could argue that we're completely unnecessary to do the manual task, but we do have the responsibility of monitoring what's going on and doing that, and we could dock manually. We can, cannot control the vehicle on ascent, but we can, of course, escape if we need to. So there are some things that we still have. I would use the analogy of automated airplanes in a commercial world. Technology has existed for a long time for airplanes to auto land, auto roll out, and, and auto brake. But they only do that for training every once in a while, or in, ironically, when the weather's really bad. Now, is it going to be tomorrow when, when passengers are okay with having a, cock, a cockpit that has no windows and no pilots in it? You see what I mean? So it's, a, it's much more of a visceral um, argument, I think, in some ways. In space, we don't have that problem, if you want to put it that way. We just have to deal with the pilot union still. So I would envision the more advanced vehicles or the, in the future, the vehicles will become more and more automated and, and less and less driven by humans. There was a question in this back corner here, and I want to make sure... Yeah, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Jan Buerk. I'm a tech and comms lawyer in Germany. And I would be interested in the space debris <clears throat> which you find up there and how you get that controlled once you're on the mission. So we don't really control any of it. We rely on people on the ground who are tracking that sort of thing. Uh, there's obviously the government, Defense Department is quite interested in what's going on, and they are kind of right now at least a belly button for tracking the debris. I don't know, and so I have plausible deniability on what the size of the, of the object that they can track, but it's, it's fairly small. And so the way we mitigate the risk is that the ISS and pretty much any spacecraft is hardened to be able to withstand a certain size impact, or I should say impact from a certain size object, and that's based purely on probabilistic risk assessment. So the, you know, there are very, very few really big things that could hit you, and there are a lot of really small things that could hit you. And somewhere you make a value judgment and you say, I'm going to armor my vehicle to withstand an impact on this size particle or smaller, and, and that's what the ISS is. So we have a very strict, they call it PNP, probability of no penetration, that we monitor all the time. I can tell you after doing spacewalks, you can see impacts uh, a lot. It looks like pitting from, from small, could be a paint flex that hit the uh, ISS, but they're traveling at very high velocities. So, That's how we mitigate sort of the, the stuff that we can't really control. Now, the bigger pieces, which are rocket bodies and, and you know, defunct satellites, those are gradually, probably a little late, but I think in some ways like climate change, people are recognizing that socially, in a way, we have to be responsible about that stuff and we can't just discard these things. And so there'll be, I don't think I can say regulations yet, but there are certainly guidelines put out by the government with certain enforcement mechanisms that are encouraging industry to deorbit defunct satellites, deorbit used rocket bodies, etc. So we're slowly trying to clean that up, but it's a process. Going to a question online, we have Anil from MIU asking, do you feel the overview effect? Can it help expand your perception box, sort of? And you should probably explain overview effect sure. for folks who may not know. 
So the overview effect has been documented since Apollo days, and that is a, a, a shift in perspective that people feel when they see the Earth from in space. And it is, I would say, subtle, but real. And you definitely feel more connected to both the planet and the people on it. You don't see the borders of countries like you do on a map when you're looking at it. Earth looks just like it does on a map with that one pretty important exception. And you don't see the problems. It seems very peaceful and very tranquil and very much in contrast with what it looks like when you look out into space and you see nothing but you know, black darkness with a lot of white points of light. And you see that we're only separated from that by this thin blue line, the atmosphere, and you start thinking about, we really ought to do our best to protect that line so it can continue to protect us. So this sense, this overview effect, change in perspective, has been experienced by, as far as I know, every astronaut that's been to space, both suborbital and orbital missions. And I absolutely think that it will, if, if we can expose more and more people to it, we can make the world a better place. And my journey in commercial space actually started when I was a government astronaut. I flew on this mission to the ISS that I mentioned before with uh, Anusha Ansari, who was a spaceflight participant, one of the very first non-professionals to fly. And I was a little skeptical, to be honest. And after spending time with her, both in training and in space, and seeing how she communicated, 2006, she was doing something called blogging, brand new thing. Lots of people were paying attention, people who otherwise wouldn't care about human spaceflight. And this started to dawn on me that this experience, you know, we shouldn't jealously keep it, we should openly share it. And this concept of democratizing access to space has really kind of took hold then. And I truly believe that every human, and the three that flew with me on AX1 will absolutely attest to this, who experiences that, whatever their footprint is, is on Earth, the, the people, some of the people in that footprint will be affected by that. And you can see this multiplicative aspect of how the overview effect starts to permeate things. And the more people that we send to orbit and suborbit, but in, in orbit, I, the three guys that flew with me were numbers 582, 83, and 84 that have ever orbited the Earth. And now that number is higher, obviously. You know, we, we just continue to spread this feeling uh, of the overview effect. And I think it's absolutely positive. I think we're unfortunately out of time. I would love to squeeze in some more uh, questions in the audience, but thank you for helping us get this day off in an inspiring way. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Tech Trends is an original podcast series that dives into topics like quantum computing, 5G, tech for social good, and design thinking. Our conversations touch on how tech can transform the way businesses deliver for their customers, clients, and communities. For more information, visit jpmorganchase.com slash technology. This episode was produced by me, Anthony Green, and Emma Silicons. It's edited by Matt Honan, directed by Aaron Underwood, and mixed by Garrett Lang. The show was recorded in front of a live audience at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with special thanks to Amy Lammers and Brian Bryson. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. 